Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. and welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Sarah Whitmire. Today, I'm joined by co-host Joe Wren, while Bob Salzberg is enjoying a much-needed vacation. Today, we're talking with our guests about the changing public health response to COVID-19. Virus transmission and hospitalizations are dropping rapidly, and a lot of states are now shifting to endemic approaches. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition or send us questions using the email news at indianapublicmedia.org. We are, at least for now, still doing the show remotely, so you can't call in. We've got four guests with us today, many of whom have been on the show before during the pandemic. Shandy Durth is the Director of Undergraduate Epidemiology Education at the Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health at IUPUI. Graham McKean is an Indiana University Assistant Director of Public and Environmental Health. Brian Dixon, the Director of Public Health Informatics at the Regan Street Institute. And finally, Penny Cottle, the Monroe County Health Administrator. Thank you all for being here today. Graham, I want to get started with you. You have been on the show so many times over the past two years um, as the virus has seemed to sort of wane and then pick up again. Can you just start by telling us where are we at right now? Well, um, honestly, I'm kind of having a hard time articulating our current state uh, to make it coherent, but a lot of it is very optimistic and we should be uh, happy about that, of course. You know, we're just coming off this absolutely incredible Omicron surge. We were seeing, you know, million plus cases a day in the U.S. or thereabouts, and that's dropped about as quickly as it came. Uh, we're now seeing the lowest community spread in Indiana and locally since June of last year. Uh, we're seeing our lowest spread, um, I think, ever at IU right now. Um, state positivity rates are back down to about 5%, which is great. And again, those are on a seven-day embargo, so it may, in fact, be lower than that at this exact moment. And you know, our internal rates at IU, which we look at intensely throughout the day even, um, are just about 1%, and that includes our symptomatic testing. So that's great news. Hospitalizations also dropping quickly. We're now you know, under 700 current ones in the state. That's the lowest that number has been in 223 days. And that was just over 3,500 just, just this last January. So, you know, the ICU beds are down in terms of occupancy. That's just at 6% for COVID. That was well over 50% in District 8, our health district here, uh, very recently. And, you know, deaths nationally are still way too high. And I think I have a little bit of concern that we're kind of normalizing a bit of that. Uh, but they're now down, down and decreasing as well. So it's, you know, it's a time of transition. It's welcome. Uh, the timing feels right to make some kind of change or changes. And I think it's a time for most of us, at least, to enjoy and take advantage of this and, and kind of recalculate our risk, knowing that community spread is down and have a break and a rest and do those things we're putting off. Uh, unfortunately, it feels like the onus of public health measures is really shifting away from the public and towards vulnerable individuals to protect themselves. And I think that's kind of where my concern is now at the moment. Um, and not just to, you know, not just live with it or ignore it or just move on. You know, we have to remain grounded and cautiously optimistic because we've been humbled before. And I think at least for the next several weeks, it should be pretty quiet and very nice, if not longer. Um, you know, other than the sub variant of Omicron, there's nothing really on the horizon that could, uh, you know, impede this time. But of course, that could change tomorrow, and it won't be the last variant and maybe not likely the last wave. But I think we need to just take this time and and take a collective breath and then get smart about how we move forward, how we monitor, um, and how we respond the next time. Yeah, it's interesting you were talking about Omicron sort of 
subsiding as quickly as it got here. And with that, Shandy, I want to uh, switch over to you. And can you talk about the changes in the public health response? And I'd like to get your perspective on whether you think this is the, the time to do it. Yes. Well, as Graham mentioned, basically the ownership now is on the individual more than just the public health measures. And so now if someone is positive with COVID-19, we ask that you tell your own close contacts. The state is no longer doing the individual contact tracing that they had done for the last two years. And we're really asking that people, when they come back to work, they themselves are wearing the mask, that they are enforcing that. There are no longer policies or mandates around any kind of mask use. So that's where we're really putting the ownership on the individuals to help protect themselves as well as others as they come back out into the community. And as far as whether or not this is the right time to do it, it's great to see these numbers go down. I'm a little leery just because our vaccination rates are a lot lower than many other states. I do think it's important for everyone to keep those masks. I'm afraid last week when the news came out from CDC with this new map and this new measure to determine low, medium, high, and when someone needs to have a mask, I think what a lot of people heard was, we can burn the masks now. And that's not really the message. I do think, as Graham said, in the next few weeks, uh, our numbers will continue to decline. We expect a bit of a bump perhaps around spring break. We typically do anytime we have um, like a travel break time for colleges, universities, K through 12 schools, but I don't think it will be anything big. I think my concern is in the fall, in September, October, November, we might start to see those numbers go up again, as we've seen the last two years. And so I encourage everyone to keep that stockpile of uh, masks in their house so that they can break those out again. Because we're not saying this is definitely over. We're saying we've learned a lot of lessons these last two years, and we need to put those to use sometimes, depending on how high the levels are. Unfortunately, they're trending in the right direction right now. Yeah. Don't burn your masks. Yes. Correct. As much as you want to, just hold on to those. Penny, can you talk about that? I mean, the mask order expires today. And actually, yeah, last night the Board of Health met yesterday. They met at 4:30 and um looked at the numbers as they, you know, stay up to date on what's going on. But you know, the regulation that we had, when that was put into effect, it was when the CDC, when when this all surge started, um, and the CDC advised if your level of transmission was high, you should have your masks on. And we had seen that, you know, I think as Shandy was talking about, sometimes it's, you know, oh, there's not a requirement, there's not a mandate, so we don't need them. And that wasn't the case. And it still isn't the case. But that's when we put the regulation in. And then the board really set some parameters about around that. So we wanted at least moderate to low level of transmission, and a lower positivity rate. Um, And so we were actually able to really meet that. And the new CDC guidance um, with yesterday that we fell kind of into that um, more optional mask wearing uh, recommendation. So they felt like it was time that they could release that regulation. And they went ahead and did that last night, um, as opposed to doing it today. So maybe just a little bit of a, um, I know it was welcome by some, and I know others are still uh, wanting it. So, you know, we hear from from both sides of that aisle, but certainly it doesn't mean that we don't need masks, as you've already heard, that um, there aren't places, there are times and places that we still need them. There are people who still need them. What the board did do last night was approve a set of recommendations. So essentially moving from regulation to recommendation. Nothing, I would say, new in that, but just really wanting to state very clearly that people still need vaccination. It is the most important measure that we have, that we still need to have those masks and assess when we need to wear them uh, and, and then do so. And, you know, just follow all of those precautions that we've been talking about for these past two years. Penny, if you're not vaccinated, is the guidance around masks different? 
not really. Um, you know, the, the thing is, if there's a high level of transmission, um, then we need to really consider wearing, wearing our masks and wear the best mask that you have available and make sure that it's well fitted um, and worn correctly. Those are the most important things. Certainly anybody who is up to date on their vaccines um, have the best protection, but we know, and this depends a little bit on the, the variants that we've seen as well, vaccination doesn't guarantee you that you will not get infected. But what we have clearly seen is that it reduces the severity of disease in most cases and can prevent hospitalizations and death. And that doesn't mean that everybody who's vaccinated and boosted, that nobody will ever get infected, nobody will ever be admitted to the hospital who's vaccinated or and, you know, may die, but it means those numbers are lower and it's less likely to happen. So vaccination, staying up to date on your vaccines, all your vaccines is very important. Yeah. I want to get Brian Dixon involved in the conversation here. Brian, it seems like everyone here is, I think maybe hopeful is a good word to describe it. And I know last year experts were using cautiously optimistic a lot how how would you advise people to just manage their expectations about COVID right now and moving forward? Well, I think, uh, thanks, first of all, uh, for having me today. Uh, glad to be here. I, 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 I still remain in the cautiously optimistic category. Um, I think the phrase that applies most right now is to think globally and act locally. Uh, so rates have, have come down dramatically, as Graham pointed out, both in the U.S. and Indiana. But uh, the virus is still raging through Europe right now. So there are a lot of hospitalizations and deaths and new cases being reported in European countries. Uh, it's also starting to pick back up in uh, the Pacific, uh, specifically in New Zealand uh, and several other places that had really harsh lockdowns over the last two years. And they are beginning to lift travel restrictions and other things. So I think that it's important to keep in mind that we're not done with a pandemic. It's still a global event that's happening, even though right here, uh, rates are going down. So I'm, I'm optimistic that, you know, we're going to see, continue to see these trends of, of, of lower rates and that what we will be dealing with is a manageable number of cases, right? So we've been thinking in terms of the hospitals that they were overwhelmed this uh, winter. And as we come in to spring, uh, it's more manageable for them now, which is which is great. But we're going to continue to see new cases because as people get together for weddings, as people get together for family reunions, uh, we're going to see outbreaks occur like with other diseases because people will come to those events and we will see some clusters of cases. So I remain optimistic that we're not going to, th- this spring, kind of return to the levels that we saw over the last couple of months. But certainly I want to caution people that the virus is not gone. It isn't out of Indiana. It's certainly not eliminated from the world. And so we do have to sort of be smart about the decisions we make when it comes to events and traveling and returning to work, et cetera. Hi, everybody. Joe Wren here. I'm going to chime in. You know, we're starting to hear this uh, term endemic more and more. I was wondering if someone could explain a little bit more what that means and what are the approaches differently in the endemic compared to the pandemic? Well, I'll start. Uh, This is Brian. So, you know, I think endemic means that uh, what we are expecting to see is that uh, we will treat coronavirus, uh, specifically SARS-CoV-2, just like we do other diseases. So we're going to anticipate that we will see it on an ongoing basis um, and we will begin to anticipate that it will have some seasonality to it. As Shandy pointed out, uh, we expect that it will come back in the fall. We've seen now two years in a row of large fall surges. So we would expect probably to see the same thing happen this fall and winter. And so we will need to be 
uh, prepared for that. I think from a you know, public health system perspective, how we're planning for an endemic um, situation is that we will begin to really kind of focus on things like uh, increasing the number of treatments that are available for people who do become sick. Like we have some on the market today, but we probably don't have enough to deal with yet another large surge. So we're going to kind of push on the, you know, the, the suppliers to increase uh, treatments that are available and come up with new treatments. Uh, we're also going to continue to work on our vaccination strategy, as Penny mentioned, that that's very, very important. And we'll continue to focus on encouraging people to get vaccinated and stay up to date on their vaccines. Um, and the when it comes, though, to, uh, for the most part, until we see kind of a surge begin, we will uh, kind of... Uh, put the onus on the individual. So it's sort of like seatbelt laws now where you, it's up to you to put the seatbelt on uh, and, and protect yourself and, uh, and, and keep, uh, you know, your, your, it, yourself safe, especially if you're in a high risk group. I'm sorry, go ahead, Shandy. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, if I can just add to that, just to talk about how we change it as public health practitioners, the surveillance piece will change, change as well. So adding on to what Brian said, we will start looking at COVID surveillance the way we do flu surveillance and other diseases, as he mentioned. But, you know, everything that we've encountered over the last two years, we've learned a lot of lessons. One thing that's becoming more and more common across the U.S. is wastewater surveillance. I don't know if Graham has talked talk about that on one of these previous episodes, but we're seeing that more and more across the U.S. And so we're going to build more surveillance methods so that we can see those little upticks as they happen across the U.S., Whereas it's been very labor intensive as far as epidemiology goes, all of the public health, uh, local health departments have really, you know, dug in and worked on this pretty much nonstop for the last two years. Once this has become endemic, we're able to go back to some of those other public health activities we need to do, like the other immunizations that we're all behind on and uh, other public health activities. And so it's going to become more normal in life, but also more manageable because the health departments have really taken a hard hit these last two years. So we have to kind of reassess, you know, how do we catch up going forward in this new endemic phase? And I think I'd add, you know, I think if you saw that pause when you asked the question about endemic or endemicity, um, it's kind of a sticky word. And I think there's a lot of misuse for it too, or misnomers of what it actually is or means. Um, and I think a lot of people think that endemic things are, are no longer problems or they're no longer worth addressing, but you know, like what else is endemic, like gun violence, in the United States. Um, and, you know, instead of addressing the root causes of those things, we're more addressing the inevitability of gun violence. And so I kind of feel like that's kind of the way that a lot of the public is now viewing COVID as well. And, you know, 50,000 cases per day, 45,000 hospitalizations today, 1,700 deaths per day, still not quite acceptable. Um, and, you know, I don't know exactly what phase you call that, but I think I would kind of more describe it as a transition from emergency response to preparedness. Uh, like Brian and Shandy were saying, like developing the monitoring and the surveillance systems and developing, you know, those other metrics and things to toggle things on and off um, are going to be very key going forward. Absolutely. And I would just add, too, as we think about this as just being that constant presence that that we're dealing with. And Shandy talked about the surveillance and how that changes, how we monitor for uh, the presence of infection in our community. And we, in fact, our uh, city utilities has been doing uh, the water sampling and they're in the midst right now of transitioning to the new federal program for that. And so we're starting to watch that as well. Um, Vic Kelson came to our board meeting the month in February and presented on that. And uh, we have have started just factoring that in. We had reports, so we've been getting uh, basic information about that. But we now have staff who, again, they're those as things have slowed down a little bit, we can redirect staff time. And so we can go in and look at those numbers and pull some of those reports ourselves and kind of monitor that and look at it in conjunction with all the other data that we've been looking at. And when we talk about vaccines, I mean, some of the other transition is moving, merging our specialized COVID vaccine clinics into just our normal routine clinic. So 
at our public health clinic, you can call and schedule an appointment for multiple vaccines and not have to worry about, oh, well, the COVID clinic is on this day and I need my other childhood vaccines on this day. Now we've been trying to accommodate people who need multiple things anyway, but those are the kinds of things that we can move into to make it a more normal um, routine practice. And I, I will also say that as some of our response, that emergency response uh, slows, then we can up that education around vaccines. We can focus more on trying to find out and dig deep into why people might not be getting their vaccination or their booster, and then put plans in place to really address that cause. Is it transportation? Is it hesitancy or questions? How can we address those things? And we'll be able to concentrate on those things and not deal with complaints or, you know, just these massive surges and trying to get through that. Penny and Graham, you've talked about wastewater, but we just got a question from someone on Twitter wondering if Monroe County is going to continue to have the ability to monitor wastewater. I know it's something you do now, but. Yeah, and it isn't something that we do at the health department. The city of Bloomington Utilities does that. um, And they did it up into February. It was through one program. And now the federal, there's a federal program that will help fund that. And so they are going to be continuing that. I don't have a lot of details since we're not directly involved in the the details about that, but they are right now in transition and have, I believe, started with the federal program this month. And something that we want to expand to, I mean, it's um, as community testing goes down, as community testing goes away, um, this is just such a great tool that's passive. It's non-invasive. Um, it's, you know, all socioeconomic status. You can point source sample as well. And it gives you kind of like, um, if you have a quick enough turnaround time, I think that's the key that we need to look at and, and, and fixing and, and making better. Uh, you get like maybe a four to six day notice of cases before you see them clinically or through test results. And so um, I think you could get smart about your testing strategies using something like this as well. So uh, this may be just a really oversimplification, but I'm just wondering, so if we get to endemic, does that mean basically you go to the doctor because you're sick and they would diagnose you as, as having contracted COVID and would just treat it like they would the flu or something? Is that, is that where we're headed? Um, I hope so. I mean, I think that's part of it. And I think one of the, you know, we've had a, a federal plan released this week as well. And I think there's some really great elements in there. I think it addresses some of the things that a lot of us are looking for. And part of that is a test to treat program where you could, you know, go to one of these national pharmacy chains that are participating in this, get the test. If you're positive right then and there, get the antiviral treatment. Um, I think as Shandy or others have already alluded to, that supply is pretty low, pretty scarce right now. It's supposed to be coming. It's not there. Uh, but then also the equity issues too. Um, not everybody always has access to some of these things in these places. And um, how do you provide that to rural areas? How do you provide that uh, in minority communities that are often, you know, have the a higher disease burden, especially from COVID? I mean, that's been proven through studies as well. And so I think the equity issue needs to be addressed. But yes, that's kind of the idea. And I think um, kind of where this uh, hopefully is going. Brian, I'm curious from your perspective, what are some of the numbers that we should be looking at? Because I feel like it keeps changing based on testing and like the seven day positivity rate or some of these different things. How, how should we be, how should we be looking at this data? And then I guess the second part of that is why don't we do that for other things such as the flu? Well, uh, I would say, uh, you know, Individual numbers sometimes are, are difficult to interpret without context. So we really try to caution people to look at the trends more than, you know, any one day's number in terms of, you know, new cases or positivity. But certainly, you know, what we're seeing, uh, you know, kind of the target that we, we often have is we want to see, you know, positivity under 5% kind of is our, is our goal. Um, particularly with with COVID-19 and and moving towards that endemic state. Uh, We also, you know, 
really want to try to see, uh, we really focus right now on, on kind of hospitalizations because with availability of home tests and lots of other things that could complicate some of the indicators that we have on the state's dashboard and other places, uh, we really are, especially in an endemic situation, as, as Graham was talking about, when, you know, going forward, pe- people are really only going to get diagnosed, um, you know, when they uh, go in for testing or they go in to see a doctor. And so those numbers start to become more important in looking at uh, who's entering the healthcare system, essentially for seeking sort of testing and treatment for the disease, uh, rather than a lot of the screening programs that we had over the last two years uh, to do as much as we can to find additional cases and get those people into isolation and quarantine for a period of time. Um, and I think, you know, the, um, I, remind me of your second question again. I apologize. I was muted there. Um, why don't we do similar things oh. such as the flu? Like, why don't we have a dashboard monitoring cases of flu and seven day average, things like that? Well, yeah. So I think there, there's two reasons. One is I really think, you know, COVID-19 uh, it, it has given birth to the rise of the era of dashboards. Uh, we really didn't use a lot of dashboards in public health before c- the pandemic. Uh, we probably, you know, we, we could have been, um, but, you know, public health has sort of lacked some of the technology and infrastructure to do that. They're working on, on that now, trying to um, fix that for the future. But, you know, we do have a lot of routine surveillance for flu, for example. There are what we call sentinel sites, uh, sentinel physicians, for example, that report flu cases to the state. Uh, the state does have a weekly report that it produces. So you can go to the website, the state's website and download. It's a PDF, though. It's not a dashboard. So it's not as sort of you know, interactive. It's not as user-friendly as the dashboards that we've seen developed, but we do track flu on a regular basis. We certainly track people who die from flu. We track people who are hospitalized from flu, and uh, we, we kind of calculate on an ongoing basis those numbers. So I think that's, I don't, I don't necessarily think we're going to move back to just static PDF reports for COVID-19 and other conditions. I'm hoping though that going forward, we'll actually start to see more dashboards for multiple diseases so that we can track, for example, multiple respiratory diseases in the fall and winter when we tend to see those numbers go up. And I will add, you bring up a great point, Brian, as well. And that is um, just the infrastructure and funding for that, that the infrastructure for those things, while they're also somewhat new, that that's not been there. And uh, public health in Indiana has certainly not been historically well-funded. And so maybe one of the good things that could come out of this pandemic is certainly has been putting more money into public health and raised awareness of public health. And hopefully will, as people want this kind of information and in this format, understand that other things have to happen as well to make that the norm. Penny, can you just briefly talk about where do some of the various markers data stand right now in Monroe County? Sure. So in Monroe County, and talked about that dashboard, uh, there is sort of that weekly um, metrics map that has been used in over the past uh, year and a half or almost two years, I think, since it's went up. And our cases this week did fall below 50. They were at 43 per 100,000 cases. Um, On that weekly um, report, we were just under 6% positivity. Um, And as Graham noted in the very beginning that the positivity rate, it's all kind of that seven day rolling average. So it does change from day to day. And yesterday it was at 4.6%. So it was under that 5% mark. Um, And those were some goals that were in our initial regulation. I think I mentioned that at the start. Um, And then yesterday, if if you're someone who's looking at the CDC's new metrics and their website and that county view, yesterday we moved into what they considered a medium community level. 
And so those numbers, the, the thing that I always caution about that is there's always a lag time in data, right? We're always looking backward. You know, even if it's just to yesterday, we're looking back. And those CDC numbers, when I look at them, they are back a little bit further than our were state numbers. So it doesn't mean that they're not good numbers. It doesn't mean that we don't want to look at them. It just means we have to put them in relation to what we might know today and in comparison to what those numbers are and that there's a little bit of a lag time there. Interesting. Well, we're past the halfway point. You're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU. And our guests are here to field your questions and comments about COVID-19 and public health responses. Don't forget, you can tweet us at Noon Edition, or you can email us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Shandy, I I know we briefly talked about this, but Maybe, I don't know if you have any more information about any new variants. Have you heard anything more? How concerned do we need to be about new variants? So the subvariant under Omicron hasn't been too bad for us. So it is more contagious. It hasn't shown to be more deadly. If you've already had the first version, you seem to be pretty well protected against the subvariant of that. Um, Again, when you're looking at the possibility of variants, it's a really hard thing to predict. But one thing you need to look at is how many people do you have who are vulnerable? So again, here in the state in Indiana, we only have about uh, 60% of the people vaccinated. So we've got a chunk of people still not vaccinated. So those people are very vulnerable. As um, Brian mentioned, in other places of the world, we've got... uh, COVID raging right now. And so we also have some countries with very low vaccination rates. So again, many more opportunities for a variant. So I don't want to be the Debbie Downer of the group, but I want to say never say never on this. I mean, we have been humbled before in the past, as Graham said at the beginning of this, you know, none of us would have said this was going to last for two years, two years ago, and we've learned that lesson. And so that's where the surveillance really is a critical piece of us surviving this and learning to live with this. And so that's why we need the infrastructure in public health and we need the data analytics and we need the staffing at both the local and state health departments. We always say response is always local. And so we really need to build up the local health departments here in Indiana. So in case we encounter something like this again, and I'm sure we will at some point, that we're better prepared next time. We've got a lot lot of lessons learned and I think we can be better prepared for the next variant or the next new disease as that emerges and comes here to Indiana. What new information have we learned about the vaccines and boosters and how often we might need to get them? How long it lasts? Well, in our, this is Brian, uh, in one of our most recent uh, analyses that we did of vaccination, we found that uh, vaccination immunity wanes over time. We confirmed that both during the Delta period and the Omicron period, particularly in the Omicron period, as it had been um, several months since people last received their second dose. And we found that the third dose made a difference, uh, especially in older and more vulnerable populations. The third dose makes a big difference in boosting your immune system to keep you out of the hospital or sick enough that you need to seek medical care. And so I think what the patterns, both the reduction over time and the fact that the boosters are effective, that information is telling us is that we will need to have some regular boosting of our immune system against COVID-19. So given, uh, you know, what we saw in the, in the data is that the you know, protection went from about 90% effectiveness within two months of that second dose um, down to about 70% effectiveness uh, after time with a, with a booster. And so you've got, you've got you, your protection doesn't go from like 90 to zero right away. It, it takes some time. So I think what that suggests is that 
we probably don't need to get boosted every six months. It's more likely going to be once a year. And we also need to develop vaccines that are effective against multiple strains or multiple variants of this disease. So that much like what we have each year with the flu vaccine, we would have a COVID-19 vaccine that would protect us against these multiple strains in anticipation of what may be coming. So we can continue to do surveillance to find new variants, uh, give, share that information with drug manufacturers so that they can adjust vaccines and develop vaccines that are effective against multiple strains, and then bring those vaccines to the market to keep people protected in the future. Yeah. Graham, let's also talk a little bit about testing because, you know, one of the things we know is that testing, a lot of these public sites are going to be scaled back quite a bit. Is there still a lot of opportunity to get tested? And then also, how are we going to be able to to know how bad spread is if we aren't testing? It's a great, great question. And as of right now, there's still a lot of community resources available. And the State Department of Health has a goal to at least maintain one um, free community testing site in each county, which whichever site that is or who operates it, I think is to be seen. But that is hopefully to still continue. Um, it feels like just now, as we're coming out of the highest demand for testing and after we're entering the third year of this, really, um, you know, it feels like just now we're, we're starting to reach a better supply, um, starting to see it again in the grocery stores. The government's starting to send them out. They're going to start sending them out again next week. We can order a second batch of four tests from the government. Um, so I think that's really important. I think it's going to be important to continue to test. Of course, the trouble we have in public health with the home tests is they're not reportable. We don't know about them. Um, and so I think that could be challenging. But that's where I think expanding some of that passive surveillance like wastewater surveillance um, can give us some benefit as well. Um, so I think uh, that's something to continue to think about. I think we need to continue to expand that and then get really smart about our testing strategies as well. Um, you know, higher risk areas and congregate settings. Um, like long-term care facilities and jails and even dormitories and things like that, you might have a, a better risk, bigger risk of outbreaks and things like that. So when do you apply that testing? And that's, uh, you can kind of use some Sentinel surveillance and things like that to kind of have better, uh, better and smarter testing strategies. Penny, what sort of testing is going to still be available here in Monroe County? Well, certainly right now, the state-funded uh, gravity site is here through March. Uh, the state is clo- phasing those sites out through April. Um, our, 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 ooh, excuse me, our current understanding is that is set to close on the 1st of April. So we will have it through the month. Certainly, there's home, as Graham talked about, there's home tests Um, There's an opportunity as well for schools to do testing if they desire to, but also to get home tests that they can disperse to their students' families um, so that they have home tests available for them. Uh, Providers in the community uh, have testing available. Pharmacies still have testing available. And again, as we kind of think about it in comparison to the flu, as we move to more of that surveillance, um, you know, not everybody gets a a flu test, but usually you go to your provider for that. And that's where we'll be moving, I believe, except when we have maybe indicators that say maybe we need to have a specialized clinic. And we may be able to get a mobile clinic to come and help us set up and do some testing for a week or something like that. Yeah. Um, Shandy, I should have followed up with you about vaccination rates after Graham's comment, but um, can you talk about Indiana's vaccination rate? And if we're continuing to get any more folks vaccinated and I guess just also just sort of how you feel about relaxing a lot of these measures when with given our vaccination rate? Sure, that's a good question. Um, As I said earlier, the state vaccination rate is still um, just under 60%. And so we still have a lot of uh, opportunity there for more vaccination. Unfortunately, what we've seen over the last few weeks is that we're getting very few people come in now at this point for their very first vaccination. 
Um, lots of people came in for the booster, which is great. As Brian said, that booster is really critical in protecting you, um, especially with Omicron. And so we need to do more education. We still see a lot of hesitancy among pregnant women. We have a really low vaccination rate among pregnant women. So we need to do more of that one-on-one conversation with um, expectant moms. We need to talk more with people who have just been, you know, adamant against it. My concern is that I don't, and this is me, I haven't seen a lot of research on this. I think people hear RNA and they're confusing, you know, that message with the DNA and things. And they are just set in their ways that they're not going to take this vaccine because it will affect something later down the line. So I think we need to address some of that frustration, some of that misinformation that's been out there. Um, You've probably seen the Surgeon General be very adamant about how we have to start going after people and companies who are spreading misinformation, especially around uh, vaccine hesitancy, that sort of thing. And so we've got a lot of opportunity for progress and we need to keep working on that. I would say we should not give up on those people who are not yet vaccinated. I still sometimes, some of my nurse friends will tell me that right before someone is intubated in the hospital, that person will go ahead and beg for the vaccine. Well, unfortunately, it's just too late at that point. So that's where we need the providers to be educated on how to best talk with their patients And as we've all heard too, the providers often don't have enough time to talk with their patients about those and those individual um, patient appointments. So we need to work on that on many levels around public health and in the medical community. And as far as relaxing some of the public health guidelines, I'm comfortable with a lot of what I'm seeing. I I think the CDC map makes sense. I can say I felt um, bad though for those people who are more vulnerable. Maybe they're immunocompromised. I feel bad right now for families with kids zero to four because those kids are still waiting for a vaccine option to start at all. And so I think that we need to be prepared as a society, as I said, to maybe ramp some of those up again if we start to see transmission levels go up, um, if we start to see a surge on the hospital. I feel like we were all shouting in December and January to take every measure you could because our hospitals were just pounded And I think, unfortunately, we had so many people who were just fatigued over the pandemic that they just weren't listening to that message. They weren't wearing the masks. They weren't going in for that first vaccination. So I think we've got a lot of work ahead of us in public health with COVID still. I definitely don't think this is over. Um, So I think it's something we're just going to have to work on, just like flu vaccines every year, as someone said earlier. Uh, There's a lot of messaging around flu vaccines and hopefully eventually COVID and flu vaccines will just go hand in hand and it will become a norm, but we've got a long way to get there, especially in Indiana. Yeah. And locally in Monroe County, you know, we're just around that 60% mark as well. And we've been there. And I mean, you know, we were, we were getting up over there and then the five, you know, the five to 11 year old vaccines came and, and of course it dropped because we added additional people and, you know, we've pretty steadily got back up there, but just in the past month, really, we just, you know, it's a few, few numbers, a few new vaccinations a day. And so we're, it's a very slow increase. Now our nurses, um, while our, our visits are certainly dropping off a lot, the nurses have reported that we are seeing a, you know, a few more people come in for that first dose. So perhaps there's something that's making individuals decide that now is, is the time to go ahead and do that. I'd like to think that it's been parts, the education and the information that, we and, uh, and the state health department and others are providing, but um, whatever it is, we hope that people will continue to, to look for and seek out answers to their questions so that they will be comfortable with getting the vaccine. The other thing, Sarah, I would just add, when we talk about our hospitals, you know, they've had to put off all these elective surgeries and we've talked about this in our local press conferences, those elected surgeries aren't just, oh, I think I'll have that surgery. They're, you know, they are needed surgeries, but they aren't an immediate life-threatening issue today. And so there are people who are in excruciating pain that can't get that surgery. Um, Or there may be people who have a heart condition, but 
it can be put off a little while. And so we're glad to see that our hospitals can, can, can start adding those surgeries back in and taking care of people who have been waiting for much needed surgeries, uh, even though they may be referred to as elective. Yeah. Um, you know, we just have a, a few minutes left. I, I did want to ask about as the weather gets warmer, there might be some more, I would assume, increased travel, international travel. travel. What are some good rules to follow now for safe travel this summer? I don't know, Graham, if you want to start and others want to chime in. Yeah, sure. Um, again, I think with this current rate of community spread, at least domestically in the U.S., uh, like I said at the beginning, this is maybe a time to do some of those things that you've been putting off uh, and to enjoy those things. And the CDC has pretty solid guidance in terms of domestic or international travel. And, and right now, if you are traveling internationally, you still have some testing requirements to come back to the U.S. Uh, but I certainly think it's smart to test before you go uh, and maybe test while you're there, depending how long you're there, and then testing three to five days after your return as well. Um, right now, the federal transportation order for masking remains uh, on all public transportation and in airports and airplanes, uh, but that's going to be evaluated the next um, about 14 days or like next two weeks as well. So that could that could change. Uh, but if you are concerned about that, I think if anything, I'd be more concerned in an airport than an airplane because of the air exchanges and things like that, just people traveling. And that's where we kind of go back to uh, if you do have that level of concern to wear a mask, wear a high filtration mask, wear the best mask you can. Um, but um, as Brian said, there's some really high spread in areas, uh, other parts of the world as well. But um, and I think Shandy said we probably do expect some sort of a bump after travel. That's just how viruses work and, and things happen when people move around and get back together. Uh, but to the degree of that spike, I, I, I you know, hopefully think it will be pretty minor. Would you advise against international travel just yet? Uh, not necessarily. I think um, a lot of places have a lot of good protocols in place. And again, um, if you've up to date on vaccinations and if you're taking, you know, some basic precautions and you're aware of the, your risk levels and where you're going, I think, um, you know, every, everything's going to uh, have some degree uh, of safety and things that we can do to be more safe. And those are exactly what, what I would suggest. Okay. Brian, you know, the state of Indiana has been under this public health emergency for two years and it's it's set to end tomorrow. Can you explain what that executive health order has allowed Indiana to do? And um, I guess how significant or what's going to change when it's lifted? Yeah. So public health emergency orders are helpful in allowing, uh, you know, sort of uh, a number of, of normally what we would describe as red tape to sort of be cut uh, in order to enable marshalling of resources, right? So it allowed, for example, the state to deploy the National Guard to help out nursing homes initially, um, and then eventually hospitals as well. It also allowed the state that, you know, more flexibility in, um, you know, moving funds to local health departments, to providing support, to develop mobile clinics, to do testing and vaccination, allowed uh, certainly uh, the state to put mitigation protocols in place, like originally masking. Um, and, and so the, those emergency orders are very helpful in allowing uh, both state and local health authorities to, uh, you know, to kind of do their jobs more effectively uh, without, uh, you know, having to jump through, like I said, the red tape. So I think what we could expect to see with the with public health emergency orders ending is, as Penny pointed out, I think what we're going to see is a phasing out of some of these um, extra support mechanisms that the state has been using that are specifically geared towards COVID-19. So we're going to see, for example, individuals who used to work in health, in public health on, you know, chronic diseases like diabetes and hypertension, we're going to see them move away from their um, emergency COVID-19 response teams, move back into their regular positions and work on focusing their efforts on addressing those diseases. We're also likely to see, uh, you know, the the continuation of of dismantling, if you will, this extra infrastructure we built that was specifically for COVID-19 testing and vaccination. Okay, we only have about three minutes left, but I I really want to give you all just a chance to end the program here by saying 
what advice you would give to our listeners, you know, go on that spring break trip, still probably wear a mask, go to that wedding. Um, just what you all think and would personally do. So Graham, you want to go first? Uh, yeah, sure. Again, get up to date in vaccinations. I think one of the the problems that we all have is uh, we don't know who is high risk and who is vulnerable. So continue to think about others, think about uh, the empathy and the greater good and some of those larger, maybe more crowded indoor situations. And I think uh, that you should continue to consider masking in that uh, and looking at those community levels. But uh, again, this is, I think, a good time to to kind of do some of those things that we've kind of been putting off or maybe haven't been able to do, uh, but to, to continue to pay attention to those that are paying attention as well and in, in doing that surveillance and that monitoring and making those adjustments as, as the conditions change. All right, Shandy? Just to echo what Graham said earlier, we will actually be traveling on March 18th, probably, right, as the um, mask mandate ends for some of the federal uh, travel, like planes, buses, that sort of thing, we will still be wearing our masks. And again, it's not so much about the plane as it is crowded airports and being in an airport with people from around the world. So again, think about the risk, riskiness of the environment where you're going. Make sure you're uh, well vaccinated. Everyone in your group is vaccinated and go ahead and sign up for those free test kits. If you've already had your first four Um, You can get your next four next week. They will open up the website again for you. So make sure you just have your preparations. Go ahead and enjoy uh, spring. We've earned it, but just be smart about it going forward. Great information. And Penny, about 30 seconds. Sure. I agree with everything that's been said. And I would just say, keep informed and make informed decisions. So assess your risks on a personal level, assess the risk of where you're going. And I would agree with however we started, don't burn that mask yet. (laughs) Okay. Brian, are you still going to be masking? Yes. And uh, my kids are still masking, even though uh, not all their peers are. So we will continue to do so for a while. And I think that's my, my advice is be smart and, you know, ease into this, you know, cognitively, it's even going to be challenging for many of us to go right back to where we were in January of 2020. So it's going to take some time. It's okay to take things slowly and get more comfortable as you move forward. Fantastic. Well, thank you all so much for being here today. That is all the time we have. I want to thank all of our guests again and for co-host Joe Wren, our producers, Binta Boutier and Holden Absher, engineer John Bailey. I'm Sarah Whitmire. This has been Noon Edition. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Support comes from WFIU listeners like you and from the Grunewald Gallery and the Eskenazi School of Art, Architecture, and Design, presenting contemporary works by professional and student artists in a special exhibition format on the IU campus in the Fine Arts Plaza near Showalter Fountain. You're listening to WFIU Bloomington with translator W270BH at 1019 FM in Bloomington. W264AL at 100.7 in Columbus.